0: welcome back to the arab tyrant manual podcast i'm ahmed Gatnash and i'm joined today by iad al-baghdadi uh, it's been a long time yet
1: it's been a long time um and as you can see i'm wearing my 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 santa suit <laughs> with the beard and, and and the red shirt uh but yeah, uh, very glad that the Arab talent manual is finally out of hiatus, and we can we can say hi to our fans again, and we can restart the conversation. It feels like everything has changed, and uh, I suggested this episode, this first episode, to be focused on this, on how everything has changed.
0: Yeah, so I think we're gonna go over um, what's changed, like personally. Uh, in this episode, we're going to go over what changed within our team and at Koakibi Foundation over the last two years. Um, and then we're going to look at the world, because um, obviously the world has changed a lot in two years. But there's also a lot of subtleties in the changes that affect you know, civil society and the human rights space and the global fight against authoritarianism. So um, why don't we uh, start from the top? Uh, what's changing with the podcast? We're going to be regular again. We're going to be broadcasting once every two weeks. Um, available on your favorite podcast app we're going to be on video Um, so if you're not watching this it's on YouTube as well Um, and we I believe this is the first time that we're actually doing
1: uh, this format with video but it seems I mean uh, if, if this works and if the format works I think we will have all of our episodes going forward on video as well
0: yeah and we also have a second podcast starting, which is going to be um, different from this one. It's uh, called Intergalactic Torbosh. Um, so you can tell from the name, Torbush is a fez, by the way, you can tell from the name it's quite out there, but it's basically more of a personal podcast by myself and EA, then we're just going to talk about our interests and be less political um, and, you know, the things that we're looking at in the world generally. Um, so, you know, one week we'll be talking about our workout routines, the next we'll be talking about cryptocurrency, and then the third we'll be talking about evolutionary psychology or whatever
1: yeah so i mean uh, this was a chance uh, the last two years i guess uh, were turbulent for everybody i think but were especially turbulent for us Uh, we have been on hiatus since practically since 2019 we did a couple episodes in 2020 uh, but really they weren't really that well promoted and we were not really ready to to really come back with any regularity back then Uh, and so I feel that this is the true reset, uh, and we are in a good
0: shape right now to to make this regular going forward. Um, so, Yad, why don't you explain why we went off the radar in the first place? Well, this
1: was in twenty nineteen, and I believe uh, I believe we we kind of were semi regular until uh, around May or April of twenty nineteen, when uh, you know those dramatic events happened with with my life when I was contacted uh, by Norwegian intelligence and told that I'm a target I'm a uh, you know I'm a target of a Saudi threat and uh, of course after that there is a lot of uh, personal turmoil because you know when when they tell you that hey Mohammed bin Salman wants to kill you uh, it's not like they knock on the door and they leave there's a lot there's a lot that happens after that uh, so it impacted um, it, of course, it impacted our work, uh, but it also complicated everything. It complicated meeting in person, uh, traveling, uh, digital security, uh, my own living situation, my family's living situation. Um, you know, I, I, my, my parents at the time were refugees in Malaysia, and we had to uh, act very quickly to secure them and make sure that they, they're in a safe country. Thankfully, they're in Canada now. Uh, But there was, you know, there was really a lot going on in my personal life, um, which as a result, I don't want to call it really personal because a lot of it is because of work. I mean, when someone wants to kill you for your work, it is really personal, but it's also about your work. But um, that was when we realized that... Yeah, first of all, it was impossible for us at that point to to uh, to do anything with any regularity because there was a lot of instability and a lot of uncertainty and a lot of things that we have to do in order to re-secure ourselves. But I think, I believe it was around July or August when we started talking about, you know, what this means for our work. Um, for the longest time since 2017, I believe, we were... Um, we were mostly reliant upon our own audience for funding. Uh, we had a crowdfunder in 2017, and we had like the Patreon since uh, you know since I think it was 2017 or 2018, can't remember. Um, but you know we were basically audience funded. Uh, plus we had some grants uh, from you know some foundations within Norway. But you know it wasn't exactly that. Um, you know we weren't exactly institutionalized. Uh, you know it was just enough for us to get by. Um And that was our own way of, you know, maintaining our independence, I guess. But then after the events of 2019, we realized that, you know, it's kind of our go big or go home moment. Uh, the work got, got complicated. We are basically on the world stage and we needed to build an institution and build power and build an, a formidable organization with proper funding, proper processes. Uh, or we really couldn't sustain our activity anymore. So, like, we decided, you know, if it's either go big or go home, to go big. And uh, that's what we spent the last two years doing, you know, building a foundation, building an institution.
0: So there was a while where it was becoming pretty stark. We were, like, being... So you're being basically hunted by one of the richest men in the world, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. Um, We're consulting, like, different international organizations, governments... uh, uh, social media companies and uh, another of the richest men in the world on uh, various issues like uh, disinformation being produced by autocracies and meanwhile we're just like a team of volunteers um,
1: well the, the second you know the, the second uh, uh, the, so the first uh, richest man in the world here is Mohammed bin Salman and the second is Jeff Bezos uh, and that's a crazy story I don't think we actually did an episode just explaining
0: the that whole story but uh you know, uh, and also the fact that he's consulting us while we're a team of volunteers funded by a twelve hundred dollar a month Patreon.
1: Yeah, that was crazy. <laughs>
0: uh, but you know, it's
1: it's. I I guess I mean, it it was a scary period of time, but I kind of look back at it with a, with a certain fondness because it was also exciting. To be honest, it was exciting to be at the middle of all of these, you know, very big events, or at the center of these big events. Uh, And, uh, you know, just like I I told Norwegian security when they when they picked me up, um, you know, they showed up at my door and they had, you know, they said, you have to come with us. Um, I said, you know, if if they don't want to kill me, then I'm not doing my job Uh, in, in a very, in a twisted kind of way. It's kind of a compliment. But yeah, I mean, otherwise, I guess we should also mention that between now and then we published a book.
0: You know, we have the, you know, the Middle East Crisis Factory is published. And we've really underdone the promotion on that as well. So people will be hearing more about that. Kind
1: of like, I think I, in my mind it's kind of, we're kind of overdue to actually start promoting it properly. It was, there's always this idea that once we're able to travel, we can do kind of a proper book tour, but then in a COVID kind of threw everything into disarray. Uh, but yeah, we, we, we Middle East crisis factor is out. In fact, our next episode, I believe is going to be a deep dive into the, into the book. Um, and, you know, personally speaking, I guess, uh, of course, you have the big update, because you got married and moved to Wales.
0: Yeah, and I joined uh, KF full-time, so I'm no longer the part-time volunteer.
1: Exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, personally, I guess I, I one thing I would flag also, because this is a, t- a topic that we will be talking about at Arab Tyrant Manual a lot, I graduated my PTSD. Uh, I mean, I've been in in, in, uh, in therapy for PTSD since 2017, and... This last May, my therapist kind of said, "You know, you don't need to see me anymore. Uh, you're good." Uh, which I, I saw like you know, uh, uh, it, it's 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 not very often that someone actually uh, you know loses their diagnosis for PTSD. I, of course, I still have PTSD, but um, talking about trauma and talking about trauma recovery and tra- talking about, a new project of ours called Shifa is also going to be part of our of our work here at the Arptiret Manual and of course I lost a quarter of my weight since 2019 uh, which is, I guess I, I guess it's been I mean of course it's a lot of turmoil but you know there are some uh, some bright spots
0: so we went from a small team to an organization basically over the last couple of years you want to talk about that
1: well yeah I mean you you mentioned of course how uh, you you're now a full timer with our team, where in 2019 you were not. Um, but you know, like over the years, uh, you know, we, we've been we've been working as a team since 2013. Uh, but it was always kind of uh, it wasn't really formal. Keep in mind, in 2013, um, you know, I we we hadn't met in person. Uh, we were mostly collaborating on a book project, and in 2014 and 2015, uh, you know, I was between prison and a refugee camp and, uh, you know, scrambling to, to piece my life together, basically, after all of that. The...
0: And we, we did a whole episode on this whole story a couple of winters yeah. ago. Um,
1: and so throughout the years, we had already developed some pretty good ideas about how, if we are to build an organization, what we would be doing and how we would conduct uh, our work. Uh, Keeping in mind, of course, I have a background in startup consultancy. So like for 10 years before 2011, my job was to start up startups. Um, We were always eclectic and we were always different in our approach than a traditional human rights organization. Uh, To the point that sometimes we used to discuss this, when we used to discuss this among ourselves, we used to kind of wonder, do we really fit the mold of a human rights organization? Um, We also have a good platform on, you know, specifically on Twitter, we have connections, we have proven work uh, across many fields. Um, we've been, I mean, when I say eclectic, I mean that we've done investigative journalism, we've, we've done disinformation work, we've done, you know, political analysis, uh, we've done, of course, op-eds writing, we wrote a book, uh, we've written strategies, we've done media, uh, but we, we were always doing these things in series, like we we're doing one after the other because we, didn't, we lacked the, the bandwidth to do everything at the same time. Um, and so when we decided, you know, this is the time for us to, to build an organization, we had to take the time to write everything into a strategy and that's a strategy of course we're pretty br- proud of uh we brought all of this all of this expertise all of these ideas and even more like i think it's like 200 300% more now um and now it's like nearly 2 years later and here we are uh you know we the Kawakiri center is on good footing institutionally and i think we're ready to have a really good 2022 hopefully uh and to start surfacing the stuff that we've been working on for a long time
0: And one of the things we've been talking about most is basically sustainability. I'm not sure if we've discussed it before on this podcast, but our focus has always been on making sure that we can do this in the long term and that we don't burn out and it's uh, sustainable long term. So part of our media plans for the next year, um, putting this podcast on a a regular schedule, starting the other podcast and a few other projects that people will be seeing soon is uh, basically that we want to have our own uh, revenues from the media we produce. So that we're not dependent on anybody else in order to be able to keep doing our work.
1: It's pro- It's probably a good idea at some point, uh, actually, to do an entire episode about uh, the evolution of social media platforms and how increasingly they're kind of uh, they're adding monetization options, uh, and what th- what this means long term. Because you know it might be that uh, you know we had kind of a collective moment where we are. Uh, collectively very critical towards the advertising based model of the internet in general uh, but that's in that's that would be an interesting conversation but
0: uh, as a segue here because i think we are to well i think i think just to add that the really interesting part is the fact that this may really lead to a an explosion of new human rights activism and a spring for human rights activists because it allows them to be sustainable for the first time like we've seen so many amazing people come and go over the last decade just because they couldn't keep doing what they were doing. It was detrimental to their personal lives and to their finances. Um, and this has the possibility of changing that. Um, and we're really trying to create a model.
1: Uh, I mean, I, I hope so. And um, I mean, as a segue, maybe I should ask you this question. What, what do you think is, is the most exciting thing uh, as you look forward to, to 2022? Like, uh, among everything that we're working
0: on. So I think you're gonna expect me to say I work on Bitcoin, um, which does massively excite me, but so does our mental health stuff. And I think really at the core of it is um, the opportunity to actually build things rather than talking about them. Um, So too many people try to advocate for others to do the things they want to see in the world, uh, whereas we're actually going to be building systems ourselves. um, And that's incredibly exciting. I
1: mean,
0: mean, yeah, you're
1: right. Uh... I have totally predicted that that would be what you'd pick, but uh, I mean, I, I, could, I could go on any, I could answer in many different ways, but I think uh, the one thing that excites me the most is bringing in cool new people into the team. And, uh, you know, the big names that we will be declaring, uh, making public soon. Um, I think that's what excites me the most, like really working with your comrades. Uh, it just really feels great
0: so on to the world what changed in the world over the last two years apart from um, this uh, pandemic some people may have heard of
1: <laughs> well i mean the, the question is where, where do we start because i mean if we want to uh, to start from 2019 uh
0: so last time we did an episode donald j trump was, was still president of the yeah USA. and i
1: think the trump years have changed the world order in ways that um uh, um i think many people anticipated but um I think it's also that many people at the time kind of wanted to see Trump as an aberration uh, in the world, of course. I mean, the idea is the idea was this is an exceptional period, and then after Trump is voted out or whatever, maybe we're going to return to some kind of normalcy. But I think the Trump years have had uh, such a great, um, you know, it's such a deep impact, I think not... As a change in anything, I think it it, it was more of an accelerator, uh, and it allowed some pretty bad people to be to uh, to make some progress in their own plans, which are pretty terrible towards really bad objectives. Uh, but in a certain sense, I don't know. This is like we we kind of think differently about strategy in this team, and I don't think that's very bad. It's not too bad. It's not all bad when when uh, terrible people dictators uh, occupiers etc show their true face and show their true intentions in fact when you give them space sometimes they they show you who you, who they are they they give you information about what they're planning and sometimes they become reckless and when they become reckless they make mistakes and uh, you know uh, that uh, in a certain sense of course they hurt a lot of people uh, i mean we would know more than more than many um, but it also Creates this new reality where you have to you have to deal
0: with uh, you know y- y- you have you
1: have to really upgrade your strategic
0: thinking. So I think one of the most um, explicit forms of this was that basically during the Trump years, um, Israel kind of came out as a proud member of the axis of autocracy in the Middle East, um, rather than uh, this masquerade of being the region's only democracy. They basically firmly planted their flag as uh, being in support of the regional order of authoritarianism. Um, and that was something that Trump's presidency allowed them to do. Um, they invested really heavily in him. They invested heavily in Mohammed bin Salman uh, in the UAE. Uh, we had this normalization of several of the regional governments with Israel. And it became really clear in a way that nobody can deny now that there's basically an agreement um, that In exchange for their recognition, Israel basically uh, ensures that democratization efforts are thwarted. Like NSO Group was uh, one of the most uh, prominent examples of this, where this um, this spyware that uh, former military uh, coders, I guess, um, from elite uh, cyber intelligence units of the Israeli IDF uh, moved into the private sector and built and then sold to um authoritarian governments across the world and it just became a global menace um because it went from you know advanced cyber capabilities went from being something very tightly controlled to something every uh Tim pot dictator and his uh, gang could uh, purchase very easily and uh, menace journalists and hunt them down with it and activists and so uh, etc
1: i mean uh it was really, the writing was on the wall as as far back as 2017, uh, because it was in 2017 that the Saudis uh, got NSO software. But uh, if you remember, Ahmed, in 2016, when we were discussing the rise of Mohammed bin Salman, and he was, you know, he was kind of having these kind of meetings with various people, uh, trying to convince them that he's the one to rule. He's the He's the reformer. He's the, you know, he's the... Uh, the, 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 that liberal reformer figure everybody was waiting for. Uh, of course, before, of course, uh, the, real, the reality of who he is is now, of course, uh, com- completely manifest. We could clearly see uh, an unusual Israeli interest in him. Uh, the way that I see it now, and I, I know that uh, it, it might be jarring for a lot of our, our viewers and a lot of our, our, uh, our listeners who are not from the Middle East and North Africa, to, to get a completely different viewpoint uh, about something that maybe they you know they kind of tuned in and out. Um, maybe they have been fully engaged, I don't know. But for us, uh, this is abundantly clear now that Israel is at the heart, not, no longer at the margins, I don't think it was ever at the margins, but uh, at least explicitly speaking, manifestly speaking, it is at the heart of the regional order of dictatorships now. And that the Abraham Accords, the so-called Abraham Accords, uh, I really hate using the word Abraham Accords here. I feel it's, uh, I mean, as a as a as a devout Muslim, I feel I feel that's insulting. Um, but I think the, they are being sold as peace. They're being sold as people-to-people interaction. They're being sold as uh, you know regional uh, integration. Uh, as diplomatic accords but i think they're they're far i think what, what we've seen since then kind of shows us that it's far more than that uh, this is a strategic alliance uh, and this is kind of um, the 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 counter revolutionary core that existed as far back as 2012 2013 the same people who 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 fought the Arab spring in 2011 you know after 2011 uh, now have a strong, a strong and explicit ally in Israel. Uh, I do believe that they had relations far before. Uh, but now this is completely in your face, completely explicit. And there, the Israeli ha- there are Israeli hands in repression across the region. I mean if I mean we study this information, this is part of what the Kaaibi Center does, and we see their hands everywhere. Uh, when, when we look at Pegasus, as you mentioned, we see their hands everywhere. When we look at, I mean, recently, for example, there's an ongoing coup and, uh, and an uprising uh, in, in Sudan against the coup. Um, and what does it mean, for example, when we read news about how the, uh, the, the Americans had to speak to the Israelis to kind of call off the coup or have, you know, a different outcome to the coup? I mean, it's obvious that they have their hands across the region here in support of dictators and in, you know, in opposition to to uh, any kind of democratization. Um, I have to tell you, though, I mean, of course, this is worth its own, uh, its own deep dive, its own full episode. And I think uh, one advantage of doing this kind of review episode is that we get to, uh, you know, we can always come back and pick one of these topics and do an entire episode or two about it. But I have to say that it kind of feels good that our team has kind of been ahead of the curve when it comes to these things so for example in 2016 we were working on Mohammed bin Salman and he only became a widely acknowledged problems in 2018 like two and a half years later Uh, we were working on Pegasus since uh, 2017. Um, You know we didn't know that it was called Pegasus back then we just knew that it was hacking software etc provided by the Israelis Um, And it only became a huge scandal earlier this year, I mean, you know, starting, of course, starting 2018. Um, And I guess, you know, like even even after the normalization accords between Israel and, and, you know, the UAE and Bahrain, etc., we predicted, they said, you know, we said this is not going to bring any kind of peace, it's actually going to bring just anger. And it it was just a few months later when we had you know the Sheikh Jarrah uprising in in, in Palestine and ongoing of course ongoing uh, 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 events of course. Uh, but yeah, that was one of the one of the things that looked very different between now and 2019.
0: So another thing that looks very different is the fact that Mohammed bin Salman is no longer no longer has this shine as um, you know an exciting world leader who's promising so much change. He's now somebody who um, most Really, most top level world, world leaders do their best to keep away from and not be photographed next to, um, you know, most notably, Joe Biden is avoiding him like the plague, avoiding him like COVID, you could say. Um, so all of the efforts to kind of make him politically toxic worked ultimately.
1: Uh, I mean, of course, the, some people are going to argue that, you know, he's still in power and he is still causing havoc and he is still, you know, he's likely going to be in power for a long time and all of that acknowledged. But it's also a fact that between now and 2018, um, there's been like, a, there, there's now there now exists an entire cottage industry of human rights groups and human rights teams and organizations. You know, whose strategy is, a lot of their strategy is focused on countering him, targeting, targeting you know, his, his efforts, uh, whether it is in, in PR, whether it's an advocacy, whatever, whatever it is. Uh, essentially, he created his own opposition. He created a formidable opposition to him. And regardless how much his money can buy, this is going to be a problem for him for a very long time.
0: So the other thing which really notably changed on a strategic level um, since our last episode is basically the return to a democratic presidency um, actually il- illustrated what hadn't changed. Um, we went through the Biden years, uh, sorry, we went through the Obama years, then the Trump years, and now Joe Biden. And one thing that stayed constant through the three is the fact that the US um, very clearly doesn't want to have much to do with the region anymore. Um, the Middle East is no longer um, a region of central importance to geopolitics. Um, oil is no longer you know, the singular force um, in global power. Um, we're moving to a post-oil age. Um, and one thing in common with the three presidents is that they want to you know, reduce their American presence in the region and you know, clear the headache because um, what they get from it is uh, nowhere near worth um, the amount of energy and money expended. Um, and I think a lot of people are having trouble um, coming to terms with this. Um, you know, there's people who've been thinking in these terms for decades and decades, um, that everything that happens in the region has to have happened under the eye of the US um, because the US cares so much and is so involved um, that, you know, every single country, every single coup, um, every single decision, every single um, politically charged event Um. Basically, happened with their say so.
1: I mean, there of course there's this there's been there's always been this idea that America calls the shots and that uh, America is involved, like you mentioned, like is involved in every 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 big event in the in, in the region. Uh, but I think I mean even till now there are people who are, who I, as you mentioned, you know having trouble understanding where you know what is America doing here. If you zoom out and you look globally, I mean the Afghanistan moment, of course, the withdrawal from Afghanistan is when. This became abundantly clear, but I think we, we've been talking about it, me, me, and you, for over a year. Um, whether it is Obama, whether it is Trump, or whether it is Biden, there was a policy of constant, at least attempting to withdraw, attempting to disengage. Uh, you know, uh, I think Obama, as far back as two thousand eight, two thousand nine, he was, you know, he tried to basically pull out from Iraq, and that really didn't work with all of the rise of ISIS, et cetera in 2013, again, with the, 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 the Iran deal was really about creating this kind of regional order that allows America to kind of withdraw again. Again, that kind of didn't work with the rise of ISIS, with, uh, with the rising tensions, etc. and then with the Trump. Trump again came in and he's also talking about withdrawing America from everywhere. You know, but of course he's using different language. Uh, he's, he's much more brash, much more, uh, you know, aggressive. And then Biden comes in, and again the the, the main thing is withdrawal. It's uh, and of course uh, Biden's team would tell you that they're repositioning uh, versus China because China is you know is, is the main threat, the main strategic threat as they see, for good reason, of course. And I think it's it's a, might be a good idea to actually dive dive into that for one episode.
0: Um, but. Uh, the this the fact is that the region is no longer central to american thinking as it once was
1: absolutely and i think what this is what people need to understand that everything that america is doing in the region uh well you know i, I don't i don't want to go as as far as saying every little thing is motivated by 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 this desire to withdraw but it is happening within that big context that america wants to disengage um and of course it's even even while doing that, it's trying to balance with you know trying to kind of balance old relationships, old alliances, plus you know concerns for human rights. So you can see it, you can see this uh, as you mentioned with you know Joe Biden's treatment of Mohammed bin Salman because on one hand, on the one hand, they are diplomatically engaging with him, just not with the president. So it's more uh, you know it's it's more uh, a PR move, I guess. It hurts it hurts on a PR level, I guess uh or maybe it helps biden at a pr level but it's not really in the end they are still engaging him and again they're engaging him because you know whether they 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 give him uh, you know uh, a meeting with biden or not in the end america is withdrawing from the region and in the end he has to face this this region uh versus larger adversaries that he has not i mean he's spent like of course not only him but the saudi regime has spent decades uh, fighting, uh, you know, and having this, you know, uh,
0: this,
1: you know, numerous proxy wars against. I'm talking, of course, about uh, the Iranian regime.
0: So Mohammed bin Salman is allegedly very upset about the refusal of uh, Joe Biden to meet with him face to face and shake his hand. Um, he feels like apparently he's lost a lot from not having that legitimization, and uh, there have been uh, comments that that's uh, what's behind some part of the energy price inflation hitting the US right now, it's basically retaliation for that. Yeah, and
1: I mean, a lot of those smaller countries are also trying to see how much, uh, I mean, they're, they're trying to find their own wiggle room. Just, just today, for example, there's been news about how the UAE is kind of trying to pull uh, like, uh, you know, threatening to pull out of a deal to buy f 35 from the United States. Uh, also kind of saying, you know what, if, if we don't collaborate with you, we can collaborate with the Chinese. It's kind of like, they're trying to, again, you have to keep in mind that although these are wealthy countries, Strategically speaking, they're small countries as well. I mean, Saudi Arabia is much bigger, of course, a different case. But, you know, with the, with the case of the United Arab Emirates, it's small and it's fragile. Um, and, you know, we, we, are, uh, we, we have already planned uh, a series of episodes about the UAE in specific so that we can dive in deeper into this context. Uh, but I feel like when we're, when we're zooming out and we're looking at the, the Afghanistan moment um, and, you know, what we called you know, internally in our notes, we call it the great American withdrawal. Um, we feel that the 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 so-called adversaries of the West, even Russia and China, are also reaching a certain tipping point strategically, geostrategically. You know, we can see, for example, that uh, uh, it seems that China, uh, the Chinese regime, has is has become more centralized. Uh, it's also become more aggressive and more assertive, uh, and it seems that. Uh, certain trends in China also, like, you know, you're talking about economic trends, demographic trends, etc., are coming to fruition to the point that, you know, we don't know how they're going to react to that or, you know, we, essentially the next few years are not going to look like, like the last few years. It's not going to look like more of the same.
0: Same thing with Russia. So basically what you're alluding to is the Chinese... Uh, having some significant economic problems with their um, property market being very heavily inflated and also their demographic issues with uh, an aging population which is very dangerous given that um, you know a lot of their economic growth has relied on um, a very young population to power their factories and they don't have much immigration coming in to do that like a lot of other countries do so um you know and you also said uh The changing nature of rule. Basically, Xi Jinping transformed China from, you know, the classical model which was ruled by the Communist Party as a committee with, you know, a figurehead chosen every few years to a more traditional one-man dictatorship for life.
1: Yeah, I mean, and this hyper-centralization, it seems to be driven by a certain anxiety, by a certain uh, sense that Uh, we need this kind of central... Of course, it is driven by Xi Jinping's own uh, authoritarianism, of course, but I think beyond that, there is a certain strategic anxiety that uh, we're going to be traversing, uh, you know, some geopolitically difficult few years. And uh, for that reason, we need more control over the state. Uh, But, you know, before we, you know... um, we, I'd like to start to, to, to get to talking about how our outlook has changed as, you know, as a team, uh, as, you know, human rights activists or freedom activists from, from the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, but before that, I think, you know, wrapping up this kind of uh, looking at what changed regionally, I think we need to mention a wider regional outlook because there, there were like between 2019 and now there have been uprisings in Sudan, in Algeria, in Lebanon, in Iraq. In Iran, uh, you know, interrupted by COVID, of course, but in Sudan is basically continuing. Palestine, Palestine, of course, the most recently uh, earlier this year, uh, but then we've also had some reversals. We've had a, a presidential coup in Tunis, in Tunisia, uh, which is an, again an on, ongoing situation because just yesterday, I think the the president. Uh, um, declared that there's going to be uh, a referendum and new elections in 2022. We still don't know the details of that. Uh, but here, the idea here is that this kind of mirrors what we mention in the book, uh, and you know, we will be diving into the book in, f- in future episodes. But what we said is that you know, the, the next 10 or 20 years are going to exist in kind of the same ecosystem because the world is changing slowly. These you know, long term trends are. Kind of like like you know like a glacier uh, you it's it's uh, it's the, the trend itself exists and is going to exist for a long time but it's slow And because it's slow sometimes you miss it. sometimes you, you you're like you know uh, you, you don't really you don't really think that it matters over the, the next three or four years but in the end to what we call unsustainable today becomes a crisis tomorrow. Uh, And I think we're going to
0: be looking at a lot of that in the next 20 years. I just have to say that, you know, the resilience... To give an example, to give an example of that, nobody decides, like, the demographics of the country are going to cause a crisis in the next month. Um, There's no individual month where somebody says that the demographics have become a crisis. But if you um, suddenly skip 10 years ahead, you could be in a crisis. It just happened very slowly and you didn't realize it.
1: I mean, I mean, uh, j- just a hat tip to to the, the 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 revolutionaries in Sudan. The resilience of the Sudanese uprising is absolutely stunning, um, and uh, you know uh, we we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, we 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 are going to we you know we have Sudanese members of the team, uh, prominent Sudanese members, we which who we are going to declare uh, hopefully next year, uh, over the course of 2022. Uh, but i think beyond that even if we look at sudan as a phenomenon if we zoom out uh, there is a sense in the region that uh, you know even though we can have uprisings here and there we still don't have the momentum and we we have to do a lot more to actually get the momentum
0: we're trying to keep episodes of the podcast to a consistent length from now on so we continue this conversation in the next episode Tune in then when we will discuss our outlook for human rights activism and details of our work and strategy going forward. Alternatively, you can join us on Patreon where our supporters can access recordings early. Their support enables us to keep doing what we do after all. The link to that is in the episode caption. Thank you for tuning in.
1: سيأتي يمحو زمان المزيم